also time for the movie hour and time to say happy birthday to one and only Daniel Mumby. Thank you very much, Richard. Good morning. Happy birthday and Thank all that. You. How are you this morning? I'm fine. I'm fine. Twenty something, eh? It's twenty-four today. Ah, great stuff. Yes. I'm, I'm sure I remember being twenty-four once. Sometime in a couple of centuries ago. Oh, steady on, or we'll get back to Gregory's girl before. <laughs> <I don't care. laughs> Not that there's anything wrong yes. with that, of course. And uh, thanks very much to um, Tina, who emailed in. I wanted to be in very sharply this morning. It was at 20 past midnight last night. <laughs> says, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Daniel, happy birthday to you. And a little smiley face and two kisses. What more could you want on a Saturday morning? Indeed. Thank you very thanks much, Thanks very much, Tina. Tina. And if you do want to text in your happy birthdays to Daniel, it's 07961 one oh seven three, and what a cracking start to uh, the show with Bette Midler and uh, we wind beneath my wings. Yeah, now when we were when we were sort of talking under that track, we were yes. thinking back to the first show we did, it which was, was Mad yes. Max, and I think that that's the track we started off with. I think it probably was. Yes, you infusing yes. about going to see it at the Alhambra Theatre in Keswick. Yes. Yes. yes, yes. See, I do. Beaches. I do remember stuff yes. that you tell me. Yes. Did you see that film? I don't think. When did it come out? Uh, it would have been 1989, I think. I would uh, no, I wouldn't have yes. seen it first time yeah. round. I've heard of it, yes. but uh, it's on I, my list. I defy thing. anybody to see that part of the film and not cry. Okay. There you are. Annick Playhouse. Uh, tonight, I'm going back row. Uh, best exotic marigold hotel. Yeah, you can report back next week. My my biggest hunch is that you'll really enjoy it. I think you know, John Madden's a pretty decent director. I really like the cast. Yes, it's not a perfect film, but for whiling away uh, your Saturday evening, it will do its job very nicely. And next Friday afternoon at two o'clock, just in case anybody hasn't seen it, it's The Artist. Yeah, which is really, really good. And uh, yeah, just a fantastic did a black and white film that's almost silent, actually won Best Picture. And then The Raven in the evening. Yeah, now The Raven is, it's a bit of a muddle. It's directed by James McTeague, who, you know, worked as an assistant director on The Matrix and then directed Viva Vendetta, which I really like. I think Viva Vendetta, of all the Alan Moore adaptations, is the one that makes most sense and is the most fun. And the problem with The Raven is that, it, on the one hand, it wants to be this kind of Silence of the Lambsy plot involving, you know, a killer replicating mm. the murders of Edgar, uh, re, uh, whose murders replicate the tales of Edgar Allan Poe. And on the other hand, it wants to be this kind of punchy, slightly pot-boilery thriller in the way that V for Vendetta <laughs> was. So it yeah. kind of falls between two stalls, but John Cusack is perfectly cast, and for kind of nuts and bolts popcorn entertainment, it will be okay. Just don't expect a masterpiece. All right. Box office number is 01665510785. And just a bit of a pre-warning, middle of June, The Woman in Black is going to be on screen. Fantastic. Yes. Up to the Maltings in Berwick now. And a bit of a blockbuster week, really. Let's start with this afternoon, 2.30, We Bought a Zoo. Which is, you know, a partial return to form for Cameron Crowe. I don't think it's anything like as um, schmaltzy in, in a horrid sense as Elizabethtown was. Yes, you could sketch the plot out on the back of an envelope if you just saw the trailer. And, you no, know, yes, it does pull on the heartstrings. But I do think that Cameron Crowe does do sentimentality quite well when he's being reined in by his stars. And Matt Damon is very good. And tonight at 7 o'clock, 21 Jump Street. Uh, we'll come on to that because it's still... In in the top ten. It is, just. Unbelievably, yes. 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 War Horse on a Monday evening at 7.30. You going to make the joke again? Or no, no, no. no. The, the time has passed. Yeah, yes. not Spielberg's best, but no, it's a good old-fashioned tearjerker, and no, I don't know how faithful it is to either the book or the play, because I haven't seen or read either, but it will do its job. And then Wednesday at 1 o'clock and 8 o'clock uh, is Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, 
And then swiftly on to Thursday evening at 7.30 and next Sunday at 1 and 3.30, The Pirates, which is also in our top ten, isn't yes, it? Yes, we will come to that. So we will come to that one. Shall we start on the top ten, then? I think we should. It's, uh derivatives and all that at uh, number 10 lockout yeah it's no it's essentially an unofficial remake of escape from new york which which wasn't a brilliant film but there were a couple of really nice moments in escape from new york like um the moment where isaac hayes first comes on screen isaac hayes best known for voicing chef in south park and in escape from new york he plays the gangster yeah. holding the american president played by donald pleasant's hostage and his entrance is driving in on this massive limo with chandeliers on both of the the headlamps which is quite funny and then there's a moment of him sort of uh shooting knives at, at, at Donald Pleasance when he's being nailed to the wall. There are individual little bits in the Carpenter original like that, but what Lockout does is it kind of takes all the kind of the interesting charm out of Escape from New York, all the stuff about sort of, you know, criminals and that sort of thing, and turns it into a very much a nuts and bolts, run-of-the-mill thriller. I mean, I like Guy Pearce very much, and he makes the best of what he's got, but go and see the John Carpenter film instead. We said we'd come to it, 21 Jump Street. It's done a lot better than I thought it would. I mean, a remake of an 80s TV cop show, I mean, if you look at things like, you know, Starsky and Hutch, who attempted to sort of relaunch the brand or pay homage to the brand, or if you look at something a lot worse, The Dukes of Hazard, which has got Sean William Scott in, that was dreadful. Um, the TV series wasn't, though. No, I mean, the, the film was the film completely m missed the plot but the yes, uh, tv the series was the tv series was all right the film was essentially 90 minutes of people r jumping around in cars going that's all they did in the tv series yeah it? but the difference is that the tv series <laughs> didn't have willie nelson selling his soul in a terrible cameo um so yeah in the case of 21 drum street i i quite like it i think some of the retro jokes are okay if very familiar jonah hill and channing tatum do the best they can and uh, it's not brilliant but it is quite funny Number eight, what's it still doing there? You said it would be as well. Yeah, I said this 3D was, Titanic. Yeah, I said this would hang around. No, James Cameron's a hypocrite. He complained for ages and ages about how bad retrofitting was. I need to go back and retrofit his film. I dare say that we're going to get Aliens in 3D or The Abyss in 3D before too long. Just don't go and see it. I mean, all the technology in the world isn't going to fix the terrible script. Mirror, mirror on the wall. What's the worst film of them all? That's a good one, isn't it? That is very good. It's not quite true with this one, because I don't think this is quite as bad as... No, well, is it worse than Titanic? Mm. No, Titanic is better. Um, so... This is visually flashy, but very feeble on a narrative level. No, it renders Snow White, it takes out all the substance of the fairy tale and replaces it with just very pretty costumes and bad slapstick. I mean, Tarzan Singh should get back to doing music videos because clearly he can't tell a story. On to number six, and it's Battleship. Awful. <laughs> number five, The Cabin in the Woods. Which looks good. I mean, I like all the references to The Evil Dead and My Little Eye and the works of H.P. Lovecraft, which don't get enough attention these days outside of Reanimator. It's not perfect, but it's a really interesting kind of take on that genre. Considering all the production problems that it had, it's it's really good to see that it got to the screen in uh, the complete version that it did. And, you no, know, I really like Josh Whedon. I mean, if you've ever read um, his blog, I think it's kind of something like Whedon.net, and he does yeah. a dissection of this horrible film called Captivity, which no, no, I don't want to say too much about, but no, that is one of those things where you read it and think, yeah, I just agree with everything you say, you're a brilliant guy. Cabin in the Woods is very good. Number four, uh, animation, it's up at Berwick, the Pirates Band of Misfits. Or the Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists, because of course we're reading off Rotten Tomatoes, which is an American website, oh, and right. uh, that's what it's called in yep. North American territory, because apparently they have a problem with putting scientists in the title in case people <laughs> won't go and see it. Um, it's, which is nonsensical. The film is brilliant. I mean, 
as with Arbor and the Devil is in the detail, you won't see everything the first time round. It's not the most groundbreaking work they've ever done. I mean, Curse of the Wear Rabbit kind of shades it. And you no, know, I think it's on a par with Peter Lord's earlier effort, which is Chicken Run. But the voice cast are great, particularly Imelda Staunton. And once Brian Blessed comes on, you just think, yes, I'm in heaven. Nobody else could have played that part. And some other names for you, because this is a cast list to die for. Hugh Grant, Martin Freeman, David Tennant, Brendan Gleeson. It goes on, doesn't it? Yeah, and I've almost, I almost picture Hugh Grant with that massive beard now. I won't be... <laughs> the next time I see him clean-shaven, I'll think, where did you go? What have you done with it? Uh, the Hunger Games at number three. Which is really great. I mean, there's been lots of arguments online about the extent to which of blood or pain has been shown in the film, and particularly the role of shaky camera in yeah. getting the film a 12A certificate. I mean, my view on it is that the shaky camera works, and that we wouldn't really be having these kinds of debates if the film wasn't working as doing what it was, which is being a really great, thrilling, thought-provoking science fiction film, which understands both the genre and, more crucially, the fans. And it's got Woody Harrelson in it. And Woody Harrelson is very good in it. And um, what a character name. Hey, Mitch Abernathy. Yes. Yes. It could only be. It yeah. could only you be. You should really see it. I mean, it's yes. tough, but you'll really like it. Number two is Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. Yeah, that's the house Yemen. Yemen. Yes. You say Yemen and I say Yemen, let's go the whole thing off. Um, so, uh, it's pretty decent stuff from Lassa Halstrom, you know, if you wanted to drive a bus through the plot, you could, because it is predictable and ridiculous, but I really like Ewan McGregor and Emily Blunt, and it doesn't quite fall into the same trap that dear John did of exploiting the Iraq war for the sake of sentimentality. We'll come on to uh, dear John again in a little bit, because the new Nicholas Sparks adaptation is out, so, yeah, yeah that's to look forward to. It's not perfect, but again, as escapist tosh, it, it does what it says on the tin. And number one, by a country mile, is Marvel's The Avengers. Which is the best we could have hoped for, for what is essentially all the Marvel adaptations rolled into one in a massive tentpole. I mean, it is too long. There are too many protagonists. No, I was comparing it to the problem with the Justice League in the sense yeah. you don't know who to focus on. And I don't find Tom Hiddleston remotely convincing. But Josh Whedon directs with integrity and flair to satisfy the popcorn crowd. Out of the two Whedon efforts in the top ten, I would still see Cabin in the Woods because I do think this is long and baggy. Yeah. But considering how bad a lot of the Marvel adaptations have been, that's, no, it's an achievement that it's done this well. So, recommendations? Uh, the Hunger Games and The Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists, if you haven't seen them already, and then uh, Cabin in the Woods. So, some good stuff around at the moment. There is some pretty good, once you get out of the top, out of, out of the bottom half of the top ten. There's only one or two turkeys. Well, yeah. two. Yes. <laughs> Okay, well, it's your birthday, so do you want to choose a track? Okay. Not that I let you do that very often. Well, what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll set up the cult yeah. film, and then to lead us in, I've got something from the soundtrack, which I'll yes. play into that. So, um, the cult film this week is Blade Runner. Uh, 1982 sci-fi noir based on the novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick is, you know, a brilliant and hugely influential science fiction author. His works have inspired uh, films as varied as Total Recall, the Paul Verhoeven film, you know, Get Your Ass to Mars, that <laughs> one. Uh, Scanner Darkly, which was made by Richard Lake later, and one of the few sort of live-action yeah. films that have been rotoscoped, and that was very interesting. Most recently, The Adjustment Bureau, which I was not the biggest fan of, but, no, kind of tried to do the whole, the whole underpinning 
beginning of Philip K. Dick's author, which is kind of government conspiracy theories, yeah. corporate paranoia, dystopia, that sort of thing, all the kind of stuff that I'm really interested in. Directed by Ridley Scott, who of course is a northeast lad, because he was born in South Shields. Indeed. And uh, this is this came following his uh, jury prize at Cannes for The Duelists and his huge commercial success of Alien uh, three years earlier. He actually came to this project by accident because he was in pre-production on the long-delayed adaptation of Dune, the Frank Herbert novel, which yeah. had previously had pre-production by Alejandro Hodorowsky, this insane Chilean filmmaker who later made things like El Topo and The Holy Mountain, yeah. a bonkers director. I mean, he <laughs> makes Ken Russell look tame. Um, so he took on this project after the pre-production in Dune collapsed and also because he wanted something to take the mind off his mind off the death of his elder brother. And Dune was eventually, of course, released two yeah. years later under the guidance of David Lynch, and the David Lynch version is a mess. A couple of other, th uh, in terms of the talent behind it, it's produced by Michael Dealey, who did things like The Deer Hunter and The Italian Job. The Deer, no, the, uh, my views about The Deer Hunter notwithstanding, it is well produced. Yeah. And scripted by Hampton Fancher and David Webb Peoples, the latter of which would later write Terry Gilliam's Twelve Monkeys, which is a masterpiece. They started, it's an interesting screenwriting collaboration because they started out as rivals almost writing two separate adaptations because Hampton yeah. Fancher wanted to do this kind of very much pro-environmentalism adaptation then Ridley Scott brought in David Webb Peoples behind his back and then eventually they sort of agreed to yeah. disagree. Filmed on a budget of $28 million, so no, quite large considering yeah, the people in the slot. Took about $33 million on first release. It was released on the, on the same day as John Carpenter's The Thing, <laughs> which would have made for a fantastic double bill. Yes, wouldn't it? Indeed. Yes. And uh, the same sort of target weekend as Star Wars and Alien, because Alan Ladd Jr., who was then the president of 20th Century Fox, had a feeling that May 25th was his yeah. lucky day, because any <sighs> film he'd released on that day took bucket loads and bucket loads. On first release, it got mixed reviews and, like I say, didn't take very much. Most people thought that, no, the visuals were absolutely astonishing, but the story was disappointing for reasons that we'll come on to, because this is an example of a film that was severely interfered with and yeah. compromised by the studio. Since then, it has... It has very much embodied the cult film pattern of growing in stature very slowly all the time. Yeah. And now, if you, you know, if you look at any kind of uh, best of list like Sight and Sound or IGN, it turns up very much near the top. And of someone's, in fact, I think it was voted by New Scientist magazine as the most accurate science fiction film of all time uh -huh. in terms of technology and, uh, yeah. and predictions. So the plot is: uh, it's set in Los Angeles in a futuristic 2019. Uh, in which technology has advanced to the stage where robots can be built that are more human and human, known as <laughs> replicants. And uh, these replicants were originally designed to sort of you know, work in the deep vestiges of space, you know, yeah. in the mines and so forth. But they've been illegal on Earth since a rebellion on one of the off-world colonies where a bunch of replicants attacked and killed their human masters and stole a ship and mutinied. And uh, so the humans, in response, created these Blade Runner units who were basically kind of like these flat-foot private eyes with very special handguns who would go around retiring replicants. Retiring. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So the story follows Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, who is a retired Blade Runner, retired in the sense that he stopped working, not in the sense that he's dead, yeah. because that wouldn't make sense, who is brought out of retirement by his old curmudgeon chief called Bryant to deal with a party of replicants who have crash-landed on Earth and are roaming throughout Los Angeles, and they're led by Roy Batty, played by Rutger Hauer, whom we talked about in Lady Hawk and yeah. uh, Spetters. And uh, while conducting his investigations and hunting this group of renegades down, Deckard goes to the Terrell Corporation, which is the, the organization that built the replicants in the first place, and he encounters a new breed of replicant called Rachel, who is played by Sean Young, who's also in things like um, No Way Out and Fatal Instinct, the Carl Reiner yeah. film. And 
she's very, he finds it very difficult to detect whether or not she's a reprim because he's kind of has a load yeah. of tests that he runs through and ends up fatally falling in love with her. Ooh. And from then on it goes. So to give you a flavour of what the film is like, uh, I will now play you a little section of uh, the soundtrack by Vangelis, who also scored Chariots of Fire, of course. Excellent. So this is a little something from the main titles. Yeah. Sort of music you'd have in a massage room in a spa, really, just a space out. It is very sort of no. It's not acid music, really, but it is spaced out a little bit. I'm sorry, that analogy has completely thrown me. <laughs> but I guess it's because I've, I've got such a strong attachment to the film that I'm not used to kind of thinking it in that way. Right. Yeah, so that's a section from... That's the opening titles of Blade Runner, scored by Van Gillis, who, like I say, is most famous for scoring Chariots of Fire. Um, he actually worked with Ridley Scott again, because in the early 90s they did a film together called 1492 Conquest of Paradise about Christopher Columbus's discovery of America, yeah. and that's a very highly acclaimed score, but a relatively little seen film. Um, I should begin by saying this, Blade Runner is my favourite film. It's kind of one I of the reasons... It was. Yes, so I'm going to have to constantly stop myself, because if I do... if I I can talk all day about it, and I don't want to bore people. I mean, I do remember seeing this first when I was about 13 or 14, and my dad sort of sitting me down saying, oh, you'll like this, it's science fiction, it's really good, because I was a Star Wars fan, everyone yeah. my, you know, my age was, because it was when the, the Star Wars special yeah. editions had come out. And I remember watching it and being so transfixed by the film that I only came out of the kind of the world of it about 10 minutes after the credits had ended. Mm. And it is one of the, the really the first time that I've been really mesmerized by a film to the extent that I didn't have any kind of consciousness of anything yeah. outside of it and since then I've seen it anywhere between 20 or 30 times I kind of lost count after the 20th um, put simply it is everything you could possibly want from a film it's multi-genre in that you know it incorporates elements of science fiction gothic horror film noir action adventure romance yeah there's a perfect balance between style and substance because you have this you know, incredible landscape of colour and light which you know, looks back to the great noirs of you know, Philip Mandler, Raymond yeah. Chandler and also has complex ideas in there which are examined through the visuals and also this balance between on the one hand the cold dystopian view of the set, the, sort of the clinical sort of the blue collar 2001 that Alien was yeah. and on the other hand characters with genuine heart and a story that you really care about. Blade Runner does have one of the most troubled production histories of any film that we've covered on this slot. I mean, if you think the, the production was behind Cabin in the Woods, which was on a shelf for two and a half years and yeah. was going to be converted into 3D, that's nothing compared <laughs> to what happened Blade Runner. I mean, there were arguments right from the start between the author and the screenwriters because Philip Day K. Dick was incredibly anti-Hollywood. Yeah. And, you no, know, the only reason that Hampton Fancher managed to persuade him to write, to get the script authored was because he was a friend of his and so forth. Fancher was then threatened by David Webb Peoples, who was brought in by Scott, who himself was rather reluctant about the project because he'd, you know, he was wanting to make Dune, he was wanting to get over yeah. the death of his brother and thought, well, I'll do this and it, it might make things, make things better. Scott came to Hollywood, because this was his first properly Hollywood film, because of course a lot of Alien was shot at Shepperton Studios in England. And he expected to get a relatively free reign because of how much money Alien had took, yeah. and of course the palm, no, the, uh, the jury prize at Cannes for The Duelist, which is a very good film. But instead what he got was a heavy-handed studio who were constantly asking him to make changes to the script, to the set and everything else, and a very difficult Harrison Ford, because he'd just come off the back of Raiders of the Lost Ark anyway. <laughs> and it had a deeply unsatisfying ending in which, you no know, Deckard and Rachel 
confess their love for each other and go off driving into the sunset and of course the little in joke about that is they're driving on a kind of mountain road in the sunset and that is actually taken from stock footage of the shining so <laughs> if you kind of run the footage on yeah. it would be like so it would be jack torrance driving towards the overlook hotel <laughs> so not really a happy ending at all yeah. so they're oh they're going straight back to the overlook hotel um since then after that sort of you no know, original cut with the voiceover which you yeah. know didn't take much money there's been various cuts that have eked out over the years which have kind of revealed a little bit more of the film's true intention. I'm not going to kind of be overly geeky and go through every single cut because we will be here all day. And to be honest, the differences between them are not massively noticeable. The only two that you need to know about are the, the unofficial director's cut in 93, which basically took out the voiceover, yeah. put in a unicorn-related dream sequence, which was taken a little bit from legend anyway, and, you know, fixed some of the special effects. And then the most recently, the final cut, which is the only one over which Ridley Scott yeah. had full creative involvement, and which he says is his best and most personal film, and that's the one that you should see. I mean, the analogy I would draw between the versions of Blade Runner is um, Mark Kermode, when he was reviewing the final cut, which got a theatrical re-release, said, you know, I'm really envious of everyone who's going to see this for the first time in the correct version, because the rest <laughs> of us, it's like being excavating an Egyptian. Yeah. You, sort of, you dig a bit further, you yeah. dig a bit further, and suddenly, Tutankhamun, where have you been? <laughs> so, the initial critical reaction to the film, like I say, was that the film was visually stunning, but narratively lacking. And in fairness, they got it half right, because the yeah. film looks fantastic. I mean... It's, you no know, every single shot is, you no know, almost composed with a desire to take Ron's breath away. I mean, you have to remember that, of course, Ridley Scott comes out of advertising. Yeah. He famously goes on about the fact that he did something like two and a half thousand adverts before he made The Duelist, so he was used to working. Yeah. And he, more than, a bit like his contemporary Alan Parker, people who come out of advertising, because they have a relatively short space in which to sort of set up characters yeah. and tell the story and so forth, they have a knack for kind of conveying lots of underlying themes in a single yeah. image. You can also get that in photography. I mean, there's a story about um, when uh, Stanley Kubrick was making Eyes Wide Shut, Sidney Pollack, who of course has a supporting role in Eyes Wide Shut, also of course directed out of Africa, was talking about the fact that when Kubrick was offset, he would watch the Nescafe adverts of the man and the woman going to the <laughs> yes, flat because yeah. he was fascinated at how quickly you could tell a story yeah, with just yeah. a couple of shots, and he was trying to apply some of that to Eyes Wide Shut. I mean... The opening shots of the Los Angeles skyline, which, like I say, would have been filmed in about 81, so maybe it wouldn't have looked quite as lavish as it does now. You just have this, this just massive beauty in the fantastic, whether it's the image of, you know, flame coming from the towers or that wonderful shot of a flame kind of arcing around someone's eye, which is being reflected. I mean, it's just a work of beauty, and there's no yeah. real denying it. And these kind of scenes embody what is so special about the film, which is that it takes the vast, the mechanical, the dystopian, all the stuff that, you know, when Stanley Kubrick made 2001, it was accused of being overly clinical, to which Kubrick said that's kind of the point, because it's a film about the <laughs> insignificance yeah, of mankind, indeed, yes. and basically finds the personal and the hopeful and the yeah. human in everything you see. So you're presented with this dark landscape, and then eventually you realise how much good there is going on underneath yeah. against the despair. I mean, the film is a neo-noir, which, you know, means essentially that you take the conventions of film noir, you no know, sort of the use of shadows, the, the unreliable narrator, the femme fatale, yeah. all these archetypes that were pioneered in the, in the 30s and 40s, and you reinterpret the rules to suit the particular subject matter that you're doing. Um, so Scott clearly has affection for all the kind of the old classic film noirs. I mean, you know, in the English tradition, it would be something like The Third Man, yeah. in which you get you no know, scenes very carefully filled out with very carefully placed shadows, and there's lots of cigarette smoke, which bounces yeah. off the blue light. The film's shot by, I think it's Jordan Cronenveth, who is widely considered one of the greatest cinematographers of his age. Yeah. And so he, you know, he really, I mean, it's just... 
Ridley Scott's decisions with lighting and colour really bring out this sense of mystery and ambiguity at the heart of noir. So there's a sequence where they go into uh, the bathroom where one of the replicants has been staying and sort of looking around the drain and Ridley and uh, Deckard finds a kind of fake snakeskin scale mm -hmm. and just sort of holds yeah. it up and it shimmers and it, it's really, really yeah. fascinating. But there is so much more to the film than just kind of pretty experiments with light <laughs> and shade because, like I say, it is every bit as much a substance film as a stylistic work. And the true strength in it lies in the myriad themes. I mean, it's a film about, well, anything from man's environmental impact, because you have a city which is decaying and yeah. you know, massive social inequality, the, the nature of advanced urban society, the existential and spiritual quest for self-knowledge and self-realization, and, of course, the boundary between what is and isn't human, which, of course, there are still debates yeah. on this raging to this day. And Scott's, like I say, his greatest trick, because of his background in advertising, is rather than spend two and a half hours talking about all the issues which you'd get yeah. in something like an Oliver Stone film. Yeah. He says, here's some images, I think that they speak of themselves, you make up your own minds about it. And that's why it's, it's really good about it. I mean, from a, from a kind of science fiction point of view, because a lot of people who are interested in science fiction like to kind of match the predictions of science fiction authors to the reality that we yeah. have today. So you could be very sniffy and say, well, we don't have flying cars, we don't have that kind of robots, he was dead wrong, there's no point. Yeah. But that's just a very stupid thing to do. I know you weren't going to make that comparison, but still. <laughs> um, but the most prophetic message of Blade Runner is that the future, in contrast to the future of 2001, where everyone's sort of in gleaming white spaceships and everything's nice, in the same way as Alien, it, the future is a lot bleaker than any of us could have imagined. You have a, a society which is akin to our own in the sense that we're living with all the consequences of what has gone before, but we're not sure how we should proceed forward, and in the end we kind yeah. of end up going back on ourselves. And so you have a Los Angeles which is ridden by you know, social decay, uneasy multiculturalism, prominent sexuality, widespread crime, massive inequality, and an intelligent but emasculated underclass. And it doesn't take a genius to spot little pieces of that in the kind of the civilization yeah. we have today. And the predominant mood of the Los Angeles in Blade Runner is one of just gloom, a sort of the world weariness, which is symbolized by the fact that it's always raining. You kind yeah. of get this sort of downtrodden sense. And there is also a through line with, with Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which I think is the greatest science fiction novel ever written. Because yeah. the, the, you, have you read Brave New World? Yes, yes. You, you know the, the section where they talk about... Um, uh, people being grown in test tubes and the idea that someone's intelligence can yeah. be determined just by what chemicals you put in yeah. when you're young. So you yeah. get the epsilon minus semi-morons <laughs> yes. to do yeah. all the menial work. Well, that follows through into the replicants because you have an underclass who have been designed to have a four-year lifespan, who have yeah. had artificial emotions, and in the case of Rachel, artificial memories implanted to make them seem more human, yeah. but are actually not accorded the same rights or responsibilities or anything else that normal humans would. Yeah. And so you have this underclass which is very intelligent, but also also completely emasculated and turns to crime. There are big biblical and indeed sort of science fiction overtones to the rest of the film. I mean, the encounter between Roy Batty, the, the sort of the lead replicant, and Dr. Eldon Terrell, who's the head of the, um, the the Tyrell Corporation, in another shining reference, he's played by Joe Turkle, who of course is the ghostly barman Lloyd. You know, he's yeah. a little slow tonight, isn't he? <laughs> yes, it is, Mr. Torrance. That's that kind of thing. So there's a sequence where Roy Batty breaks into the Tyrell Corporation and says, no, I want more life. And then depending yeah. on the version, it's either father or a swear word. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, and so that is on the one, that's on one hand the Frankenstein 
Frankenstein thing of the monster turning on the yeah. master who created him. You know, if you see Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein, where the monster chases him to the Antarctic, that's taking it a bit far. And on the other hand, it's a powerful religious allegory about the distant relationship between God and man, because you have yeah. Tyrell as someone who is simultaneously benevolent, but also a monster, because he doesn't really want to accept his prodigal son, and then man kills God, doing what yeah. you know, sort of Nietzsche did symbolically, and then condemns himself to a life of fear and loneliness, and ultimately death. I mean, there is a... Th but through that, like I say, although we describe it as dystopian and sort of, you know, pessimistic in its view of the future, Blade Runner is actually a film mainly about salvation. It's... there is a kind of wonderfully positive note to it, because there is this idea that in all the stuff that's going on in terms of future injustice, in terms of inequality, in terms of just this, this horrible situation, hope can thrive, and yeah. that's shown in the relationships between, you know, Deckard and Rachel, and eventually yeah. Deckard and Roy, one's a romantic yeah. thing, one's a platonic thing. And the big questions that the film asks, you know, what does it mean to be human, how can we define what is human and not, and more importantly, does it matter if we can't? One of the biggest debates about the film is over whether or not Deckard is actually a replicant, because... Uh -huh. Yes. Um, now, there is controversy over this, because when Mark Kermode made the documentary Dangerous, uh, On the Edge of Blade Runner in 2000, that was the first instance in which Ridley Scott talked about the unicorn dream sequence, which had been put in the director's cut and saying, that means he's a replicant. And yeah. then Harrison Ford came after Strayway and did an interview and said, no, he isn't. So, <laughs> so that's what I mean about having different interpretations. And the, the, interest, the idea of where you know, the replicant confusion comes from is an interesting uh, story because it comes down to misrepresentation. What yeah. happened was Hampton Fanshire had sent David Webb Peoples, begrudgingly, uh, an earlier draft of the screenplay, which includes a scene where Deckard is thinking about the people who built the first replicants and there's a yeah. line which says, and I wonder about him who made me. Now uh, Hampton Fanshire, had, yes, Hampton yes. Fanshire yes. had written this meaning, uh, what about God? But yeah. David Webb Peoples read it and went, brilliant! Deckard's a replicant! <laughs> and Hampton went, is he? Yes, it's in your script. Great, we'll stick with it. So that's yeah. where the confusion comes from. Yeah. Um, so there's, I mean, there are arguments in both cases, and again, I don't want to sort of waste time getting bogged yeah. down in the individual reasoning, but from a personal point of view, I think the real answer is that it doesn't really matter, because I think the real message of Blade Runner is that the boundaries between human and non-human are now so blurred because of how fractionous identity yeah. is and because of how technology has moved on that what counts of human is actually little more than a kind of expression of power rather than anything more meaningful. So the concept of being human is so complicated and so ambiguous and so multifaceted that if you just reduce it down to, well, you've got metal parts and I've got flesh, that's not enough. And in that situation, the only thing that we have, when we can't define who is human and who isn't, the only thing we have to go on is compassion. So yeah. it is, it, you know, it's the kind of biblical thing again of love conquers all because Deckard understands that Roy is capable of humanity when he saves his life and also he loves Rachel regardless of whether or not she's a robot or indeed whether or not he is. <laughs> so again you have this kind of this I mean the best sequence in the film for me in the film in the sequence which all this is a kind of sign of how much an impact has on me. You know when you see a kind of sad scene in a film and you'll watch it the first time and you might have a bit of a cry but then yeah. the next time it's kind of worn off because you kind of know what's coming. The Tears in Rain sequence where Roy Batty saves Deckard's life on the roof and then dies because he's at the end of his yeah. lifespan. 
every time I hear the words tears in rain, and I'm starting to go now, I do choke oh. up. And Roy ba Rutger Hauer basically he gives this speech about yeah. the fact, you no, know, I've seen things that you people wouldn't believe. I've seen stuff at the edge of the galaxy. Now all those memories will be lost in time like tears in rain. Yeah. Then he kind of coils over into the fetal position, releases a dove from his hand, and the dove flies off oh. into the sky as if his soul is going to heaven. Yeah. And that whole speech was improvised by Rutger Hauer in the rehearsal rooms and really yeah, keep it in, because he was going as <laughs> yeah. well, but just, it's that wonderful sort of, the release of so much of Deckard's yeah. burden, and just, again, this idea that in this such dark surroundings, you can actually have human goodness, yeah. and you, even if it comes from something that, no, according to some people, isn't human, so that's a, one a fantastic way of doing it. In terms of the performances, I think it's the best thing Harrison Ford ever did. I was going to ask, did it make an actor of him? Well, this is the thing... <laughs> I think he was a very good actor before he did this, and the, he, I, but I do think that this is the best thing he ever did. If nothing else, because he was very, he was very uncertain about it for many, many years. I mean, he he didn't take part in the the documentaries yeah. because he was sort of uncertain about it and you know, had a, a thing about you know the, how Ridley directed him on that film. Yeah. But I don't think he. I mean, if you look at his later dramatic performances, things like Witness or The Mosquito Coast or anything that he did in the nineteen nineties. I don't think he would have had the kind of dramatic entrenchment that he would have had had he not yeah. done this film. Because we all know that he, Harrison Ford can do action because he's got the kind of the old-fashioned yes. matinee idol chiseled jaw and we know he looks great with his shirt off. Yeah. Um, but Blade Runner just, it kind of showed that there was something else to yeah. him and there was something vulnerable and strange and aggressive yeah. but not in that sort of strange way. Um, so I think, you know, it's his best performance. Sean Young is astonishing as Rachel. I mean, she takes the femme fatale archetype and kind of makes it her own and of her famous dress with the shoulder pads, which is now worth like something like five and a half million dollars or something. You know, yeah. She looks fantastic. It's Rutger Hauer's finest. I mean, like I say, he's one of these actors who can just look uh, like a psychopath for 90 minutes and then break your heart because he's so talented. And of course, Daryl Hannah making her, well, her, I think it's her screen debut actually, is Prince. Lovely. Yes. Sorry? Lovely. Yes, yes. Daryl Hannah is wonderful. Yes. And of course, no, you look at two years later with Splash, she kind of channels that yes. all through. So, to sum up very quickly, it's the greatest film ever made. Every single aspect of it is flawless. It's Ridley Scott's best film and you need to see it. Oh, no, you quite liked it. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, come on, it's his birthday, you can choose another one. Never Pink try. Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, part two. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Alec. This is Lionheart Radio. Pink Floyd's uh, Never Brick in the Wall. Part two. <laughs> Played specially for our birthday boy, Daniel. And thanks to Anne you for uh, emailing in to say happy birthday. Thank you, Anne. Thanks for Mick, Oil Slick Mick, for um, texting in. I think that was to say happy birthday. Thanks, Mick. <laughs> and especially for Daniel, we have a card. Oh, thank you very much. This works so well on radio as well. So just uh, just imagine an envelope, rattle, rattle, open, 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 open. Yeah, anyway, happy birthday from everybody at Line oh, Up Radio. You. That's really sweet of you. Right. Shall we talk about next week? Uh, yeah, but very quickly, uh, the next week's cult film will be Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, uh, horror comedy rock musical. Great. And we better crack on. Yeah. Uh, the can... lucky one. Yeah, uh, we'll do this relatively quickly. It's the latest in a long line of Nicholas Sparks adaptations. Nicholas Sparks is the guy who wrote things like The Notebook and Nights in Redanthe and The Last Song. You've, you've been running up the stairs quite a bit and yes. still out of breath. It's directed by Scott Hicks, who made Shine, you know, with, for which Jeffrey Rush won his Oscar. And, and 
Scott Hicks tends to make the kind of films who have very sort of serious ambitions but eventually yeah. slip into melodrama. Um, so the story follows U.S. Marine Sergeant Logan Tybalt, uh, played by Zac Efron, who's best known for his work in the High School Musical series. And he returns from his third tour of duty in Iraq with a photo of a woman that he doesn't know but is determined to find because in going to pick up her photograph on the floor in a battle, he yeah. survives getting blown up by a bomb that oh. would have landed where he was standing and all that yeah. sort of thing. So he's determined to find her. Turns out that she's a girl called Beth, played by Taylor Schilling, and he takes a job with her family kennels business and, suffice to say, romance blossoms, and we get to see Zac Efron with his shirt off quite a lot. I mean, finally looking more than 16 in a film then. Exactly. He? I mean, yes. Zac Efron's clearly trying to take on more grown-up emotional roles, having sort of made his name as a teenage heartthrob with a massive quiff. Yeah. And I really like him in Me and Orson Welles. You know, he was last seen in New Year's Eve, the less said about which the better. And suffice to say that this is not as bad as New Year's Eve, but it doesn't entirely help his cause. I mean, the plot, like all of Nicholas Sparks' stuff, does essentially boil down to if you meet a man who is very good with dogs and can sand a boat, you should stick with him and get married. And no, uh, because that's essentially the plot of Message in a Bottle, where Kevin Cosner spends the whole film sanding down a boat, and yeah. then, no, the heroine falls in love with him. No, you know exactly where the plot's going. As a cheap throwaway chick flick for seeing Zach Alfon with his shirt off, then fine. But otherwise, it's nowhere near good enough. Right, next one sounds a weeny bit generic. Uh, American Reunion. Yeah, which is the fourth in the American Pie series, if you don't count all the straight-to-video instalments that have come out yeah. over the previous decade. Uh, directed as before by John Hurwitz and Hayden. Schlossberg, who wrote the original trilogy. Story is that all the characters you know before are getting back together in East Great Falls for a high school reunion, having gotten married, had children, come out of the closet, everything you do when you get a bit older. Uh, not necessarily in that order. Uh, the twist is this time is that the lead character, Jim, who's played by Jason Biggs, he meets a girl that he used to babysit who has grown up quite remarkably, and uh, she <laughs> invites him and his, her fr his friends to her 18th birthday party, and in the manner of these things, carnage ensues. Um, clearly it's going to take no huge amounts of money no matter no, what I say. Clearly most of the cast are doing it for the money since very few of them have had careers outside the series. Yeah. I mean, Tara Reid ended up doing that awful Uber Bowl film called Alone in the Dark. Sean William Scott has been playing Stifler all his life, effectively. So it is, and it is senseless to complain about the gross-out stuff because it is what it is. It's a gross-out yeah. comedy and it, no, it does that reasonably well. But here's what I will say and what I think the problem with American Reunion is. The first American Pie, was, which came out in, what, 99, something like yes. that? The first American Pie was interesting because it, it, because it took all the kind of the cliches of Porky's and Animal House and Lemon yeah. Popsicle, and it either updated them or sent them up, and it worked not because it was nostalgic for those films, but because it said, let's have something of our own identity, but see how we can push the same gang. So, of course, in the first film, you have the, the gag involving the pie, then the second one, it's the lesbians and the trombone, and the third one, it's the, the thing at the dinner table yeah. and all the rest of it. Stuff we can't really talk about this early in the morning. Indeed. Um, so the problem is with this film, that on the one hand, it wants to kind of say, yeah, let's go back and do the old stuff, let's do the old jokes again, and no, celebrate how brilliant it is to be a teenager. But on the other hand, it wants to be kind of nostalgic and look back on all the years that have passed. So it's essentially trying to have its cake and eat it, being nostalgic and gross out, and that combination just doesn't work. Right. Not for the faint-hearted, the next one's safe. Uh, a new film from writer-director Boaz Yakin, or Yakin, who is the producer of Hostel, and it's the new Jason Statham vehicle. Story is that Jason Statham plays Luke Wright, who is a cage fighter on the mixed martial arts circuit. One day he throws a rigged fight that he was meant to lose. The Russian mafia kill all his family and say, you are going to live a purgatory existence in New York. Anyone you become friends with, we will kill as punishment for you throwing this fight that you were supposed to lose. 
His life changes when he witnesses a 12-year-old Chinese girl called Mai or Mei uh, being pursued by the same gangsters who killed his family. And she has got an incredible faculty for remembering very long numbers. He takes her in and they go on the run and carnage ensues. I mean, it's not hard to see what kind of territory we're in. I mean, the story of the boxer throwing the fight and being pursued by the mob is as old as the hills. Yeah. I mean, when Quentin Tarantino did Pulp Fiction, those were one of the pulp genres that he was pastiching. And, of course, you know, that, that whole strand involving Bruce Willis is very well done in Pulp Fiction. Also, no, the plot device of someone with an immense ability to remember numbers in their head yeah. and being used by criminals... 39 steps because yeah. no we're depending on which version it's either you know, how many steps there are to the bomb in big ben or the plans of a silent jet engine or in the john bucker novel it's the number of steps down to a lock where a u-boat's being kept and of course yeah. no, the hitchcock version is the best version of those and of course you no know, the the dynamic of you no know, a gruff gangster man and a young girl is luke besson's leon otherwise known as the professional yeah. i know that's the the one really good film that luke besson made i mean the fifth element's all right but no so we're in very familiar territory but that said it's a pretty nice little riff on a well-worn story which does play to jason statham's strength i mean i like jason statham because he clearly knows who his fans are and he knows how to to give them what they want you know so there's lots of punching sort of shooting running shouting smacking into things there's lots of witty gruff one-liners yeah. there's one in the trailer where jason statham insults a guy by speaking in an Italian accent and then bashes him over the head with a chair, which is quite funny. Now, occasionally the sequence is in, with involving the Chinese mafia do drift slightly too close to comfort towards Michael Cimino's Year of the Dragon, which is an absolutely terrible film. But for all the time when it's doing what it says on the tin, it's a good, solid B-movie. Right, next one, Silent House. Which is a remake of The Silent House, which is a Uruguayan horror film from two years ago, and this, is re this remake is directed by Chris Kentis, who did Open Water, which is, you no know, two people stuck in the sea where yep. there may be sharks, and it's, about, it's actually not about how they will, whether they'll be eaten or not, but it's whether or not they'll actually get on and save themselves. So the story, as before, follows a young man called Sarah, played in this version by Elizabeth Olsen, who was brilliant in Martha Marcy May Marlene not so long ago, and she finds herself sealed in a secluded lakeside house belonging to her family and is basically told don't go into the attic because there's no stuff yeah. down there uh, suffice to say her father goes into the attic bad stuff happens and the whole thing is as with the original it plays out in one long take or purported one long take yeah. a bit like alfred hitchcock's rope where he would shoot in 10 minute clumps and then every time he had to cut between reels it would pan behind someone's back or pan mm. behind a chair or cut to a yeah. um, shadow shot of the sky and now alfred hitchcock's rope is a very interesting film because it's an example of a film that deliberately looks stagey but is also a film yeah whereas this is no i mean as remakes go it's not an awful one because it is essentially just going through the same old ground yeah. and almost replicating it shot for shot it's not as bad as shot for shot remakes like sort of psycho or funny games yeah. which don't add anything and because i do think that the performance of elizabeth olsen does guide it through i would I don't think this is, you know, the, a good next step for her in the sense that Martha Marcy May Marlene was just extraordinary, certainly in her yeah. performance. So it's worth seeing only f really for the camera work because it is quite impressive of being able to kind of do it in well, almost one shot and it's nicely choreographed. Bits of it are nicely shot. It's not very scary, though, and, you know, but so either see the original or Martha Marcy May Marlene unless you have an interest in Alfred Hitchcock's rope and the camera work. Okay, next one sounds very interesting. Art House One is uh, Monsieur Lazar. Yeah, there's a couple of Art House Ones this week. Um, it's a new film by Philippe Falader, who directed a film with a very nice title called The Left Hand Side of the Fridge, which of course <laughs> different. Got, yes, which got me thinking about Behind the Fridge, which of course was the spin-off of Beyond the Fringe. Um, <laughs> so it's set in Montreal, and at the start of the film, uh, a teacher in an elementary school 
school dies under very unusual and abrupt circumstances. Uh, the school need a replacement for this uh, class, so they hire a 55-year-old Algerian immigrant called Bakir Lazar, who's played by Mohammed Feleg. He takes the class under its wing so they can sort of deal with the grief of their yeah. beloved teacher, you no know, dying so soon and so mysteriously. All the while, he is dealing with the, his own grief surrounding his family and the fear that he might get deported back to Algeria because there are problems with his visa. And I, I don't yeah. want to say too much more because that's kind of the heart and soul yeah. of the film. I mean, there is a tradition in French films of the character of the benevolent school teacher. I mean, if you look at something like um, the chorus, Les Choristes, yeah. which is about two young schoolboys reminiscing about this kind of this great teacher coming in and teaching them how to sing and teaching them the power of music, you know, which in a sense goes back to Dead Poet Society and that in itself goes back to, of course, Goodbye Mr. Chips, yeah. which is still, I mean, if you look at the 30s version of Goodbye Mr. Chips, it still holds up to this day. It's a really good, fun film. Um, really good performances in this, which sort of cover over the fact that the story isn't massively remarkable, but it's very nicely directed by you know, Philippe Falader. I think that, no, the central performance of Mohamed Felag is very convincing. I don't think it's groundbreaking, but it's a better film than Les Coristes, only because it tries to push the kind of the envelope of what kind of grief you can show on screen. Okay, and we finished this week with Goodbye First Love. Yeah, a new film by uh, Mia hansen Lover, I think is, because you know, it's a, an old I'm going to let you do all these ones. Yeah, who, whose previous film was The Father of My Children, which did quite well. Uh, it's another understated art house drama, which follows a 15-year-old girl called Camille, played by Lola Creton, who uh, falls in love with Sullivan, played by, this is a difficult one, Sebastian... <laughs> Uzendovsky. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yes. And so, no, they're completely in love, but he is restless and no, doesn't want to stay in this sleepy French village. He wants to travel the world and do all sorts of stuff. So they break up, or rather he leaves her, leaving her completely sort of heartbroken. He comes back about seven or eight years later to find that she is, no, completely grown up and is, no, much more independent and thinks, oh, she's just going to fall back into my arms and we'll just carry on as if nothing happens. And she goes, no, I've got better ideas. And it's about their kind of relationship playing out as a kind of... It's a classic sort of will he, won't he, or yeah. no, will they get together, is she changed, and so forth. It's a nice sort of gentle, insightful coming-of-age film, which which does take its time to unfold. I mean, it's a very sort of slow-burning film in the way that a lot of art house efforts are, particularly sort of, you know, uh, Western European art house efforts. And it does have no it's interesting that no in in a in a, a week when american pie is coming out in which female characters are being reduced largely to sort of you no know, mincing screaming bikini wearing <laughs> idiots yeah you actually have a coming of age film which has got a very strong and you no know, female protagonist and that's very refreshing to see again like monsieur lazard the story is nothing entirely remarkable but again the performances do carry it through and it's very nicely shot so no of the two art house efforts, I'd say Monsieur Lazar, if you want to, no, if you fancy having a good cry, and goodbye, first love, if you don't. Right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, time is running out, so uh, latest news coming up in a moment. We'll be back next Saturday. Yes. Between uh, ten and eleven, doing the movie hour. I'll be here between eight and ten. Have a great day, whatever you're doing. At least we've got some half decent weather to do it in. And thanks to everybody who's texted and emailed in to wish Daniel a happy birthday. Thanks. Nice guys. one from whoever sent it. The world became a better place this day. 24 years ago. Have a good one, Dan. Bye-bye. Iron Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.